0: Do you ever get a sense of how small you really are? Like God spoke the whole universe into existence, and yet someday I still behave like it revolves around me. I've told this story once before, but I love it, Uh, so I'm going to tell it again. I I got into a heated debate with my husband Rob on our way home uh, from a trip to SeaWorld, and there's a part of the park where you can see all different kinds of birds, and, and, and I have always been impressed with the pink flamingos. Even since I was a little girl, I I just think they're just fabulous, you know? They're so bright and vibrant, and and there's absolutely no reason for it, right? It's like on the fifth day, God said, Okay, you waterfowl, you're going to be white and brown and speckled, but you flamingos, you guys are going to be the color of feather boas and the inside bits of watermelon, and people will make you into tacky lawn ornaments forever. This is how I imagine God creating flamingos. So, we're driving home and I say to Rob, you know, I've lived in I've lived in Florida for like 15 years and I've never seen a pink flamingo in the wild. And he says, "Yeah, well, they, that's cuz they don't live here." And I'm like, "No, no. For sure they live here." And he goes, "No, no, really. They're they're not native to Florida." And I'm like, "Listen. I know you know a lot about geography and science and stuff, but you're just you're going to have to take my word for it." Flamingos are from Florida, it's where they live. And and I said it with such confidence that he actually started to doubt himself and he's like, well, okay, maybe you're right. Um, And and I was so irritated also that that he was arguing with me about this bit of trivia that I was clearly right about that I decided to uh, vindicate myself publicly by consulting Google out loud, you know, so we could both hear the answer together. So I say, okay, Google, which is the Android version of Siri. Okay, Google, where are pink flamingos from? And Google says... Pink flamingos are native to Europe, Africa, South America, Central America, and the Caribbean. Now, was I wrong? Yes. But here's what I have to say about that. Florida, you are a dirty liar of a state. You have been lying to me my whole life since I was a little girl, and we came here on vacation, and I bought your t-shirts, and they had flamingos, and there's flamingos in your yards. Someone explained to me how the mascot of the Florida lottery is a pink flamingo. You are a liar, Florida. I, I, I stood up for you. And you let me down. So what's my point? My point is that we can believe things that just aren't true, and we can believe them genuinely and passionately. I would have passed a lie detector test about the flamingos, but believing something hard enough doesn't actually make it true. For example, my husband, he believes that drinking Gatorade will prevent the common cold, not true. Uh, <laughs> I believe that you know buying a gym membership will make me exercise, also not true. Last December, we all believed that 2020 was going to be a really great year. Emphatically not true. As human beings, you know, we, we just get things wrong a lot. But, but despite the fact that we know we get things wrong a lot, we tend to just keep, like, go on believing whatever it is that we want to believe anyway. And, and these are kind of benign examples. But, but what happens when we choose to believe things that aren't true and it's no longer so benign? In his book, A Theory of Cognitive Dissonance, Leon Festinger writes, people seek an internal consistency of beliefs. So when faced with two competing belief systems, we resolve it by rejecting one system and clinging to the other. In other words, when we, when we are faced with two different facts, competing facts, people will just pick the fact that they like better and cling really, really hard to it, no, no matter how much evidence comes up to the contrary. No matter how much evidence... Uh, there is, against what we believe, we will just stick to what we picked because our brains can't exist, you know, in this, in this state of competing beliefs. People do this all the time. You know, it's, it's how tobacco companies were able to convince people for decades that, that smoking doesn't cause cancer. It's how abusers rationalize that they really love the people that they're abusing. It's how all of us, you know, have a tendency to, to think that anyone who disagrees with us politically must be uninformed or bought into some kind of propaganda. It's, it's pride. You know, we, we assume that we know best and even clear evidence to the contrary doesn't always sway our opinion. That's pride. Now, the Bible tells us that that we don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow, right? We are dust, but but we ignore that, and and we go on acting like disease experts and political experts and and, and experts on Florida waterfowl, and and I think for the most part, we don't think that this causes any harm, but Scripture, especially the Psalms and the Proverbs, have a great deal to say about the real harm that is caused by this kind of pride, and that's what we're going to talk about today. We're continuing in our series, Then Sings My Soul, where we look to the poetry and the wisdom of the Psalms. And we're going to be looking today at Psalm 19. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up and let's take a look together. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is God's word. So this poem can be broken down loosely into three parts. You have verses one through six, and they are natural revelation. The heavens reveal something about God. And then seven through 11 are specific revelation. God's word reveals something about God. And then 12 through 14 are personal revelation. God's word reveals something about us. And so then we we confess, we ask for forgiveness and correction now that we understand something about God. This is a poem about humility. Verse verse one, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the the work of his hands. So first of all, none of us has an excuse right, to not know God the creator because his masterpiece of a universe testifies to his existence every single day in a language that everyone can understand. Verse four, in the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, It rises from one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. In other words, there's nowhere people can hide from the sun. They didn't have air conditioning when the Psalms were written. There's no escaping the heat. And then the author pivots, you know, and it feels like the writer has abruptly changed the subject, right? From creation to scripture, but it's not a subject change at all. No, no, because he has made his key point. Nothing can hide from the sun. But listen here, so also nothing can hide from God's word. C.S. Lewis writes, As he felt the sun, perhaps in the desert, searching him out in every nook of shade where he attempted to hide from it, so he feels the law searching out all the hiding places of his soul. Everything in us, every thought, every attitude, every belief, every grudge, every prejudice is exposed by the word of God. It is living and active. It it penetrates to bone and marrow. There's, There's no shade that we can sneak under or the word of God won't expose the sin inside of us. If we look into it, and, and more importantly, if we let it look into us, we will, not we might, we will find things in our hearts that must change. And the question is, will we let them? Will we let them? Do we want to be corrected? You know, we we like to pick on the Pharisees in church, but, but the reality is that they... They loved God's law. They memorized it, they they practiced it, they taught it to other people. Their problem was their pride. They they thought they didn't have anything more to learn. And and they longed for the arrival of Messiah. They really did. They they longed for it, but they had a very narrow view of what his arrival would look like. Not a carpenter, not a Nazarite. They, 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 They wanted the kingdom of God to come by force, not by grace, but by military victory. And they were ready, they were ready if the governor pressed them to do something that broke even one of their laws, they would drop to their knees and bare their neck. They would rather have their throat cut than to break the law of their God. They, they, they would die for the law. That's why Jesus picks on him so much. It's not because he hates them. It's because he loves them. And he doesn't want them to give their lives to something that can't give them life back. You understand? They were brave enough to die for their God, but they weren't humble enough to learn from him. Are we humble enough to learn? And what are the things that you would bear your neck for? Would you bear your neck for a political party? Would you bear your neck for your money? Would you bear your neck just to be right and win an argument, even if it costs you a friend? What are the, what are the things that we would bear our neck for, and is it possible that there's more for us to learn? We've been talking a lot about racial injustice and how it has wounded the black image bearers of Christ in our nation. And, and I find myself in conversations with other white people for, for various reasons don't feel like they have a part to play in, 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 in the fight for racial justice because they don't feel like they've done anything wrong. And if that's you, listen, I don't want to lose you right now, so please hear me. I'm not calling you a racist just because you're white. But I do, I want to ask you, are you willing to learn more? Just to learn. Because for the sake of my own conscience, I cannot preach the Bible hypothetically. You know, I think I think we're a lot more comfortable hearing the word of God preached when when the injustice that God hates is a hypothetical injustice, when it's when it's a, a, a generic one that affects everybody equally. But but the injustice that God hates has never been hypothetical. It's always been specific. It was specific to the people who were oppressed when the Psalms were written, and it's specific to the people who are oppressed today. Because the Bible, it's, it's, it's not information, it's not even inspiration, it is revelation. It reveals something about God and what he wants from us, and, and not some kind of generic ethereal version of it. When, when God says, in humility, value others above yourselves, he means others who are black too. When he says he mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and oppressed, the oppressed right now are our black neighbors. When he says the way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. The fools are people who don't allow new information to season their opinions. Why don't we? New information should change us. I went to Catholic school up until the fifth grade, and and every year on Good Friday, uh, we would walk through the Stations of the Cross. 14 sculptures in our Catholic cathedral, which depicted the interactions of Jesus on the day of his crucifixion. And the sixth station was Veronica's veil. Veronica was a woman who was watching Jesus carry his cross to Golgotha and moved with compassion. She she wipes his face with her veil, uh, the blood and sweat off of his face. And then the, the, the station depicts how the, the, the veil retained the image of Jesus' face. It was impressed upon it forever. Now, despite Catholic school, I didn't actually become a Christian until just before college, and so when I got to college, uh, my freshman year, I took a New Testament survey class, and so of course, over the, uh, over the semester, we read through the entire New Testament, and when we got to the Gospels. I had read through uh, Matthew and Mark and, and I didn't find Veronica in there. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe it's in Luke. That's the long one. So I read through Luke, still no Veronica. And I think, well, you know, probably it's in John because he's the weird one, right? You have like the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you have John off doing his own thing. So, so I'm reading and, and up to the very last verse in the Gospel of John, I'm expecting Veronica to show up in it, but she doesn't. She's not there. She just she's not there and I was shocked. You know, first Florida lied to me and then Catholic school is there anything true in my life? Now, I'm not going to argue with the pope or the apocrypha, but but she's not in the canonical Bible. Now, if I'd finished the gospels and I didn't find Veronica in them, what would you think of me if I'd gone to my professor and said, "Well, you know what? Gospels are wrong." Veronica is is real. Everyone knows about Veronica. I can show you. There's statues of her in our church. Photographers, they pray to her to take good pictures. True story. She is the patron saint of photography. Veronica was real. The, the, The gospels are wrong. Now, I imagine you'd think I was pretty foolish if I went on believing in Veronica even after the Bible itself told me otherwise because new information should change us. But in church, you know, we behave like new information is like some kind of parasite looking to infect us. Why do we do that? Now, now should we subject new information to the scrutiny of God's word? Absolutely we should. Ephesians 4 tells us not to be blown here and there by every wind of teaching, but then Ephesians 4 also follows that up with verse 18. Don't be separated from the life of God because of the ignorance in us due to the darkening of our hearts. We should absolutely subject new information to the scrutiny of the word of God, but then if it is true if it's in line with what he tells us, then we should let that information change us or else we choose to live in ignorance, in the darkness of our hearts. We should let new information change us. We do with science, right? You know, we, we discovered the world wasn't flat and we went ahead and changed the maps, right? We, we, we didn't leave them the same. We, we let it change us. Well, some of us anyway. I, I understand there's a podcast out there for flat earthers. When we discovered the microbiome, we, we, we changed how we ate, we took probiotics, we stopped overprescribing antibiotics for everything. We, we changed our behavior. New information should change us. New information about racial injustice should change how we live, especially, especially when the information is not actually new. It's just new to us. But it's not, it's not really new at all. Certainly not to people who are not white. And if you're hesitant to go with me on this, I, I, I want to offer you this encouragement. Listen, I am still very much on the curve here myself. I don't, I, I'm not trying to act like some kind of, you know, authority on racial injustice. I am far too white for that, for starters. But also, I'm, I'm just learning. I have so much to learn, and I want to learn. So I'm not saying this from a place of judgment. I'm saying this because I'm lucky to have some really good people in my life who were brave enough And kind enough to tell me when I'd hurt them. And I I maybe just want to save you the pain of hurting the people that you love too. So I'm not saying this out of judgment. I'm, I'm saying it in the hope that I can spare you that. And again, I'm not labeling anybody. Okay, I have friends who, who love Jesus and, and they're smarter than I am. And, and they would say, listen, I have friends of color. I have family of color. I don't feel ill will toward black people. I don't, I don't need to read White Fragility or Stamp from the Beginning or, or join a Be the Bridge group at Summit because, I, you know, I'm good here. and Please hear me. I'm not saying that any of that is false. But my petition to you is this. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. Have the talks, read the books, because when I began my learning journey, I thought I would just be confirmed to my shame. I thought I would just be confirmed in how racist I wasn't. My goodness, did I have a lot to learn, and I still do. Are we humble enough to learn? Because even if you, even if you think you didn't break it, we all, all of us have a part to play in fixing it. Let me put it to you theologically. Adam and Eve brought sin into the world by eating the forbidden fruit, right? Now you and I, we didn't take that bite. But does that then mean that we don't have a part to play in fighting the sin that came with it? Even if you think you're good, do it anyway. Do the work anyway because we all have some area of our life where we believe there's nothing left for us to learn. And so the only voices that we trust are the ones that sound like ours. The trouble is then we're always just talking to ourselves. Without dialogue, without learning, without the humility to admit there may be more to learn, the world might still be flat, and leeches might be a great cure for fevers, and I might still believe that flamingos are native to Florida. What harm can it do to take a closer look at at our own hearts? It's how we in humility value others above ourselves, Philippians 2. It's part of how we fight for justice in our world. It's part of how we just practice Christian humility because how can we know we have nothing left to learn if we never look? Verse 8. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. God's word exposes the places where our sight and our minds are in darkness. It makes us wiser. It illuminates what we did not see before. Have you ever been in like a dark room when someone flips on the lights like a, like a dimly lit middle school dance and, and, and Brian is holding your waist and you're swaying to boys to men and life could furnish nothing better but then the principal flips on the fluorescence and instead of Brian you see that it's actually Chuck with the neon green braces I mean, I think we can all agree that, that having the lights turned on is good, but it isn't always pleasant. And we have to know that going in. It's painful to discover things that we don't want to see in ourselves. I feel that pain myself. But if we will do it, if we will humble ourselves before the Lord, then scripture promises he will lift us up, James 4. He will show us favor, 1 Peter 5. He will forgive our sin and heal our land, 2 Chronicles 7. He will guide us in what is right, Psalm 25. He doesn't just leave us in pain forever. Because if we submit to it, what does the exposing word of God do? What does the word of God do after it exposes our sin? Psalm 19 says, verse 7 it refreshes the soul, it makes wise the simple, it gives joy to the heart. It gives light to the eyes and it endures forever. If you've ever jumped into a cold lake on a hot day, you know the feeling. There's, there's a painful shock at first, but then you adjust and it becomes gloriously refreshing. And then once my soul is refreshed, once I've been made wiser, once my eyes have been opened, what is the most natural thing for me to say? Verse 12 but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Do you know you have hidden faults? There are things that we do that are obnoxious at best, sinful at worst, uh, and we have absolutely no idea that we're doing them. There are things that we do that are obnoxious at best, that are sinful at worst, that our spouses have pointed out with great regularity, and we still have no idea that we're doing them. Do you know you have hidden faults? Maybe you're not complicit in racial injustice. Maybe you're just lustful and being cooped up in your house isn't helping. Do you want to be corrected? Maybe you're controlling, even if you don't mean to be. Do you want to be corrected? Maybe you always play the victim in a conflict, even when you're not. Do you want to be corrected? Maybe you're just like a real last word guy, you know, prowling the comment section of Facebook, looking for a fight. Do you want to be corrected? Are you happy to just go along as you always have, even if it pushes the people away that God has given you to love? Why? Why bear our neck? Just to be right if it makes us so very unrighteous. Verse 11. Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Blindness is often willful. And it will rule over us if we let it, because the sins that we hang on to eventually they begin to hang on to us. Don't let them, don't let them rule over you. Then will we be blameless, innocent of great transgression. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the gift of learning. Lord, Open up our eyes to the things that we don't yet see. And Lord, forgive us for the places that our blindness has been willful. Make us wiser people today. Lord, make us agents of your healing and justice in a world that so sorely needs both. And Lord, give us the grace of humility. Help us to remember that we are dust, that we don't know anything. What can we know without you? What can we hope to understand without you. Open us up to all that you still want to teach us. Shed your light into our hearts and correct our vision. May the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.